0: We're beginning a new series of studies this morning in the book of James, and yes, you can go there with me now if you like. James is an epistle, which means it's a letter. Obviously, it bears the name of its author, James, and uh, Bible scholars believe, as has been traditionally held, that this letter was written by James, the brother of Jesus, as we study this book together, I'm looking forward to the challenges and the encouragement that we find here, and looking forward to our study in James together. As we study the book of James together, I think what we're going to find is that it is a very practical book, a very practical study for us, for believers seeking to live the Christian life. I hope that describes you, that you're a follower of Christ, seeking to live the Christian life faithfully. And if that's true of you, this is going to be a very encouraging and very, and sometimes a very challenging study for us as we study through this letter of James together. In fact, the letter of James isn't about becoming Christians. It's actually about living as Christians. And though we will find James teaching about When we get to chapter 2 about good works, the point of that teaching and the theme of James isn't about works. The theme of James is about faith and what genuine faith produces, what genuine faith looks like. That's really the theme of James. And as we are going to hear James say in chapter 2, faith without works is dead. You know it, right? What are believers saved to after all? What are we saved to as we trust in Christ? What's the purpose? To what point? Now, what's the purpose? And, where, and where, where does God intend for us to go with our faith? In fact, he intends for us to, to do good works, acts of obedience. Believers are saved by faith to practice faith-filled acts of obedience. And that's what James is all about. In other words, good works is the outcome of faith. Good works don't earn your salvation. You know that, right? We know that we don't do good works to be saved. We do good works because we're saved. And our salvation leads us to do good works. So essentially, the book of James is God saying to believers, If you really believe in me, if you really love me, you will obey me. If you really love me, if you really believe in me, show me. Prove it by your good works. And actually, I think good works is better understood as obedience to God's word. So whenever you think good works, think obedience to God's word, okay? So the challenge of James for us will be this. If God's word takes root in our lives, we will be changed. We will not be the people we were before God's Word (laughs) took root in our lives. We must be changed. If God's Word takes root in our lives, we must be changed. And the challenge of James is that we will not be able to avoid being changed if we allow God's Word to do its work. If we allow God's Word to take hold of our hearts and get a root in our lives and to grow in us, making us the people God longs for us to be. Now, we know God looks at the heart, right? And he sees our faith. God knows whether or not we really believe. God knows whether or not we truly have faith in him, whether we really love him. God knows that because he can see the heart. But God also knows that our neighbors only have our lives to look at. You realize that? You might tell your neighbor you have faith, but how do they know? You might tell your neighbor that you love the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, but how do they know? They only know what you tell them. They can't see it unless you live it. And that's where James takes us. God knows that our neighbors can only see the outside, right? Our neighbors can only see our works, our good works. And they only have our lives to look at to see whether or not our faith is genuine. So the challenge of James is going to be a very practical one. I think it's going to be very practical for our lives today. For example, when we get to verses 19 and 20 in chapter 1, we're going to learn that the believer is to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Why? For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Be careful about what you say. Be careful about how you say it. Be thoughtful and listen before you speak. And then in verse 26, we're going to hear that the one who can't control his own tongue has nothing but a worthless religion. Ouch. (laughs) We'll see it in chapter 3 as well. When we get to chapter 2, we're going to learn that there's no place for prejudice in the Christian life. The believer is not to show partiality to one person or one group of people over another. And we're going to be challenged that we aren't to judge people by their appearances. And that is so easy to do, isn't it? In fact, I just just told you that that is the only way your neighbors are going to be able to judge whether you really have true faith. They're going to judge by appearances, right? And that's why James is about practicing your faith, about living out your faith. But, But we're going to get this challenge from James that we're not to judge. We're not to be like the world. When we look at someone, we ought not make judgments about them. And God's Word is going to talk about that. James is going to jump up and down on our toes in that department, okay? There should be no place for favoritism and discrimination among believers. Any kind of favoritism and discrimination is not to be a part of the Christian's life. So there's another ouch, right? In chapter 4, we're going to be warned about being worldly, and we're going to be challenged with this fact, that the source of many of our problems is our own carnality, our own living, just to justify our own wants and wishes and desires. We're also going to learn there that not all of our praying is pleasing to God. Why? because sometimes we pray according to the flesh. We we pray according to those things that we want. We say, God, give me such and such. I promise you I'll honor you with it if you just give it to me. (laughs) We're also going to learn about our praying, that our own selfishness hinders our prayers. That should be a challenge. It also ought to be an encouragement to us to pray with right motives. So we'll learn something about prayer, and again, we're going to see it It's our own selfishness that hinders our praying, and we'll see that there is also no place in the life of a Christian for boastful pride. We're talking about selfishness and selfish pursuits, and when we're talking about that, James is going to challenge us that there's no place for boastful pride in the life of the Christian. Then in chapter 5, we're going to be confronted with our natural affection and attraction to materialism, materialism in the things of this earth and the pursuit and accumulation of wealth. We'll also be taught about showing patience in the midst of suffering. In fact, we're going to see that very early here in chapter 1 and about now you're wishing I had chosen another book, right? Patience in the midst of suffering. I've got to hold my tongue. I've got to listen more than I talk. That is just a glimpse of the point of this letter. It's about living out your faith. The point is that the believer is to live like a believer. Do you say you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Then live like you love the Lord Jesus Christ. That's James. The life of the Christian is to be one of obedient action. So where does the believer begin? I've just burdened you probably with where we're going over the coming Weeks as our as our study progresses through James. But where do we begin? Where does the follower of Jesus Christ begin? Where should we begin the study if we're to be well prepared to accept the challenge that James is going to give us to live out our faith? Where should we begin? We begin best, I think, where James begins. Note with me where the letter begins. Look at verse 1. And we are only looking at verse 1 today. In fact, we're only looking at part of verse 1. But do not despair. We will likely deal with not one, but just a few next time, a few verses next time. Just one and a portion of one verse today because I think it's important that we begin here. Note with me where the letter begins. What does it say? James 1.1, 1, 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The letter starts with the name of the author, doesn't it? James. We already noted that this is written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. But why even pay attention to the greeting? What's so important about the greeting? I mean, in in their day, they would send letters on scrolls, and so and unlike our letters where we signed the end, they would sign the beginning. So that as you un-scrolled, uh, unrolled the scroll, you'd know who wrote the letter. And you might think, well, the greeting isn't that important, right? No, it is important. Why even pay attention to the greeting? How could the greeting be all that important? Commentator Douglas Moo makes the point that many readers skip the opening verses of New Testament letters, treating them as unimportant formal details, but this is a mistake. For the letter introductions usually contain more than bare names. They also describe the writer and the recipients in ways that provide us with important clues about the nature and purposes of the letter that follows. The introduction of James is no exception. So let's not skip the introduction, okay? Because it is important, and I'll tell you why it's important in just a moment. But first, think with me about this. Think of how James could have opened this letter. He could have written... Greetings from James, the leader of the church at Jerusalem. True, which is what he appears to be, according to what we see in Acts 15, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. That would be fairly impressive, wouldn't it, to start the letter that way? Greetings from James, the leader of the church at Jerusalem. Or he could have opened the letter this way. And remember, this is James the brother of Jesus, after all, he could have opened the letter with this. Greetings from James, the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's a name drop for you, right? That's that's some impressive credentials. That would get everybody's attention, wouldn't it? But he doesn't do that. He doesn't start there, does he? And this is why the introduction is important. He simply says... James, a servant, (laughs) James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why does he do that? I think it's because he's, rightfully so, overwhelmed by the mercy of God to open his eyes to see and believe that his own brother is the Lord Jesus Christ. I think he's overwhelmed with gratitude to God for God's mercy in opening his eyes to see and believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. You see, it's interesting that neither James or his siblings believed in Jesus at first. I mean, they grew up with Jesus and they were probably, you know, always upset, you know, when their parents said, why can't you be more like Jesus? Right? I mean, no kidding. Did he sin? No. Never needed correction, never needed a spanking. Not not Jesus' brothers and sisters. Could you imagine? How come he never gets corrected? How come it's always me? It's interesting that neither James or his siblings believed in Jesus at first. James had rejected Jesus as Messiah. John chapter 7 and verse 5 tells us of Christ, not even his brothers believed in him. But later, later, he did believe. And after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, we, we see this. We learn the, that Jesus, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 5, appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at, at one time, then he appeared to James. James evidently is believing then. Then to all the apostles. And now, as James writes this letter, not only does he believe in Jesus as the Messiah, he is, think of it, he is humbly submitting to the authority of Christ, submitting to the lordship of Christ over his life. And he admits that he is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I think it's even more emphatic than that. In fact, in the original language, servant, the word servant that we have in our English translations, isn't at the beginning of the phrase. Not like in our English translations. The term servant is placed at the end. So in the original language, it read like this, James, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, a servant. And to James, the order is important. To James, the identification of his master should come first. How do people know you? Do they know you as a follower of Christ? I'm a believer. I'm a follower of Christ. I'm a child of God. Or do they know you by some other title? I, we have titles in our culture and we use them and, and we gain status by them at times. But wouldn't it be great to be known as people of God? Wouldn't it be great to be to be all about making sure people know who our master is, who our savior is, who our Lord is, and that's what James is about. To James, the order is critical. And, to, and, and think of this the use of the word servant. The use of the word servant in our modern translations is instructive as well. In fact, James used the Greek term for the word, the word slave. Now we have servant in our in our english translations and often um it's i i i think it's done sometimes to kind of uh, uh to help people understand a little better because the, the use of the word slave can be de- divisive at times right the word he used meant according to w h bennett the supreme and absolute authority of the master and the entire submission of the slave now in their day In the day in which James lived and in our day where the freedom of the individual is important, using a word like slave had for them and has for us as American readers negative connotations, doesn't it? We use the word slave and people, you know, kind of like, ah, that's not a good word. It wasn't a good word in their day either. But James wasn't talking about forced servitude. James wasn't talking about being forced into being enslaved. What he is pointing to here is the use of the term slave for himself is what we know from reading the Bible. Think of it as as followers of Christ. When we read the Bible and we see the term slave and we see the, the, the idea of being a slave of Christ, no longer captive to sin, but slaves to Christ. That, we know, is liberating. As followers of Christ who read the New Testament and read the Gospels, we know that slaves of Christ is a good thing. And that's what James has in mind, that as believers who are saved by God, we are totally dependent upon Christ. You know that from the Bible, don't you? That as you put your trust in Christ, you learn more and more that, in fact, you are completely dependent upon Christ for your salvation. You cannot save yourself. You cannot forgive yourself and save yourself from the punishment for your sin. Only God can do that, and he does that through the work of Jesus Christ. And as believers who are saved by God, we are totally dependent upon God. And with gratitude and love, we willingly and joyfully accept the role as slave. As the follower of Christ, slave is a good thing. And James was bound by love, willingly, willingly humbling humbling himself before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and And we, too, ought to be bound by love to God. We, too, ought to be willingly surrendering surrendering our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ to be his willful slaves who follow Christ. You see, those who are truly overwhelmed by God's love, for them, joyfully and willingly submitting to Christ's lordship is a privilege is an honor. Now, let's take note of something else about the statement that James is a servant or or slave or bond slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It would sound as if James is a slave of two masters when he says, I'm a, I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how can you be a servant of two masters? You can't, and James knows that, Right? He knows better, and that makes this an important statement as well. Why? Why is that important? Well, because to his Jewish readers, he's pointing back to the Old Testament when he talks about God. He says, I'm a slave of God. And he points back to the Old Testament and what his Jewish readers had been taught. And he's admitting that he is a servant of God. And then he says, he is also a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's connecting God And the Lord Jesus Christ, he is not suggesting that he is a slave of two masters. No, he is suggesting and he is adamant that he is a slave of one master. It would be impossible to be a slave of two masters, right? What he's doing is making a connection between the two. He's showing their equal authority in his life and their unity to one one to another as God the Father and God the Son. It was an important distinction for his readers then. And it's an important distinction for his readers now because it's another evidence pointing to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ because there will always be those who say Jesus wasn't God. He was merely a good person. And James is saying, no, the two are one. God and the Lord Jesus Christ are one, equal in power, equal in authority. It is as though James, the brother of Jesus, has totally forgotten about being the brother of Jesus. Totally forgotten. And he only looks to him as Savior. He only looks to Christ as Master. So James starts in verse 1 with this interesting, and I think remarkable statement, and he communicates with his greeting a truth that we too must take to heart and we too must take personally if we're going to pick up and accept the challenge of James to live out our faith as followers of Christ? I mean, think of it. James saw himself as one who was born again to serve, born again to be the slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, and willingly so. It's the attitude he begins with It's also the attitude we're going to see him carry throughout this letter. He continually puts himself among God's people as a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's one he carries throughout the letter and for good reason, because he knew what we must know if we're going to hear the challenge from James to live out our faith. The challenge of James is to live out our faith. If you are a follower of Christ today, if you claim the name of Christ, then James is a challenge to you to prove it. Prove it. Live like a believer. Be obedient to God's Word. That's the challenge of James. If you're not a follower of Christ today, James is going to be an invitation to you, a challenge to you to surrender yourself, to humble yourself, to first of all admit that you're a sinner and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and then submit to his lordship over you willingly and joyfully. And you will be forgiven your sins and you will find new life in Christ. James will be a call to you to humble yourself and repent. And listen, believer, it's it's a call to you too to humble yourself before God. James saw himself as one who was born again to serve. Is that the way you see yourself? Do you look at your life and say, Thanks be to God who's who's blessed me with his mercy and grace and forgiveness. I've been born again to serve. James knew what we must know if we're going to hear the challenge from him to live out our faith. He knew the truth of which Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20 when he said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, that was the truth James knew and made his own and proclaims in in this letter. That was the heart of James. He saw what Christ had done for him, and he saw what he was in Christ. And if we're going to learn to live out our faith, we too need to see ourselves as crucified with Christ. We're going to have to see ourselves as servants, as slaves of God, joyfully, willingly so. We ought not cringe at that idea. It is a blessing. It is a blessing that we are privileged to serve our Heavenly Father, who sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to suffer and die at Calvary, that we might be cleansed and made new and forgiven our sins. If we're going to learn to live out our faith, we need to see ourselves as crucified with Christ also, slaves of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, joyfully so. Are you ready to do that? Are you ready to do that? I would challenge you to examine your heart today. Go to this letter of James and read and let God's word challenge you and encourage you and equip you for our study here together in the coming weeks. Are you ready to surrender your life to God? Are you ready to be a slave of Christ, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, joyfully, willingly? Submitting to His Lordship over you? You see, God will change you if you will submit to His Word. If you will willingly surrender yourself. And it begins at salvation, but it doesn't end there. It begins at salvation, but we must continually, day by day, say, God, I am yours. Please use me for your glory. Change my mind. Change my heart. Use your word. And by the power of your spirit, help me to conform to the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ. Help me to live a life that brings great glory to you and honor to the name of Christ. That's what it requires of us that we would daily surrender ourselves to God and the Lord Jesus Christ as servants. I trust the Lord will help prepare us for our journey together through James as we submit ourselves to him, as we humble ourselves before him. I trust you'll do that. I trust that's your desire. I pray that it is.